Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to do Acts 5, verses 12 through 26. The context is this. In the first 11 verses of chapter 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit about how much money they had, uh, held back from the church, and they were struck dead by God. And everybody, all the churches and all. Now, some more awesome stuff is going on in these verses, 12 through 26. The apostles in town, in the temple complex at Solomon's porch, Solomon's colonnade, are doing all kinds of miracles. And the Sanhedrin is going to get mad about it and arrest them. So that's, the, that's where we are now. We'll start with verse 12. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. By common consent, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. Now, signs and wonders always accompany the preaching of the gospel in the, in, the, in the book of Acts. They are signposts that point people to heaven, and they are a wonderful evangelistic tool. That's why they're called signs. That's why I think that today the greatest number of conversions is being done among charismatic and Pentecostal movements all across the world, if you look at the missionary statistics, because they are not like John MacArthur and Phil Johnson and Justin Peters, who are constantly saying, no, they don't exist. Signs don't exist. Well, these people didn't have that attitude. The apostles, they went out and did them. And they would all meet at Solomon's colonnade. Solomon's porch, some translations have it. We'll give you a verbal description of it from the NIV Study Bible. It was a porch along the inner side of the wall, enclosing the outer court, which, of course, was the court of Gentiles. And it had rows of 27-foot high stone columns, it was a narrow colonnade. If you look at the picture, which I have here, you can't see it. But the stone columns are on each side of the walkway, and there's a cedar roof on top that covers the walkway. There's a gate called the Golden Gate at the due eastern end that lets you into Solomon through, lets you go through Solomon's porch into the court of Gentiles. And so the apostles would go into that colonnade there, into that walkway, and they would do miracles and preach the Gospels. When it says they... There's some options. It could be the apostles. It could be the 120 disciples upon whom apparently the Holy Spirit fell. It could be the whole church. I don't say you can get 5,000 people into the colonnade at this time. Gil denies that. Gil denies also the 120 disciples and says it's the 12 apostles. I think that's probably who it is. doesn't say who they are exactly. Now, this verse is often used to say that the early church didn't always meet in houses. I remember when I was trying to make a case at the, the normative place for Christians to meet, scripturally, biblically, were in homes, and somebody emailed me and said, well, see here, they didn't meet here in homes. Well, they weren't meeting for church meeting, folks. They were out there evangelizing. There is a big difference between evangelizing. I don't believe in evangelizing in homes, because people that are meeting in homes already believe. You don't need to evangelize them. This is out in the highways and the byways. I believe evangelism ought to be done under tents, in football stadiums, in coffee shops, on college campuses, that's not church. That's evangelism. Acts 5.13. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people praised them highly. Well, the first question is, is who is this rest? None of the rest. Well, the NIV translation has no one else dared join them. I think that's, a, that's probably what it means. It just means the apostles alone had the guts to get out there and do all those miracles. Nobody else did. Well, because they were marked, people, marked men. The Sanhedrin was... I'd already arrested them once, and they're getting ready to do it again. So it shows that these early apostles, they had guts. They had courage like crazy. The boldness of the Holy Spirit was upon them. Now, going back to the rest, a lot of people speculate, what does this mean? 
No one besides the church dared to join the apostles there preaching. That's the NIV study Bible. In other words, no unconverted people dared to join the apostles. So This is Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. So this option says that, yeah, there were other Christians besides the apostles there preaching. It means none of the non-believers wanted to join them. Well, it could be. Or it could be none of the rest of the church besides the apostles had the guts to come up to go, get out there and heal and preach and teach with the apostles. That's John Gill's view. Because there was so much reverence for the apostles, everybody was scared to go out there and work with them. Adam Clark says it could be the rest of the people besides the 120. So there were 120 out there preaching. Adam Clark says it could be others in the Jewish nation who were divided into sects. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians wouldn't join them, but the Christians were. Well, all of this is obviously you can see the splits of opinion everywhere because it's total speculation. I think it means nobody but the apostles were out there, Christian or non-Christian. It was the apostles themselves out there. But the people praised them highly. I guess that assumes the people who did not believe but nonetheless thought it was awesome that they were doing all these miracles. It's hard not to praise people who are doing miracles and healing the sick. There's someone on the sidelines. They would praise the apostles, but they wouldn't do what the apostles were doing. They might not even profess Christ. They might have been scared of the Sanhedrin, but they still liked what the apostles were doing. But they weren't doing it. And a good application point arises here. You know, a lot of Christians like to stand on the sidelines. They don't want to get out there and do the job. The nasty job, the dirty work of evangelism, the hard work of evangelism. That's not what the early apostles' attitude was. They went out there and they did it. They didn't talk about it. They did it. Acts 5.14, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. So all this evangelizing and miracle working that the apostles were doing had its effect. Lots of people getting saved. And again, signs, miracles, a signpost that point people to heaven, and here's the proof of it. Both men and women that shows that women also had the courage to risk their lives and their sacred fortunes in proclaiming their belief in Jesus because, again, they were putting themselves in trouble. They knew that the Sanhedrin hated the apostles, but they didn't care. They believed in Jesus, crowds of them, men and women. So we see now that the previous incident of Ananias and Sapphira being killed by the Holy Spirit or killed by God, that didn't slow down the church or growth of the church at all. In fact, it probably helped the growth of the church because it got rid of the hypocrites. And so the church was pure. I think this is a good application point for those who think the church discipline would hurt their offerings. Oh, we can't get rid of that adulterer or that homosexual because if we do that, people get mad at us and start saying we're insensitive and we're intolerant and, and, and people will leave and they'll quit giving us our money and we can't pay the pastor or pay off the church mortgage. No. Purity, church discipline, getting rid of sin, at least known sin. I don't mean you go on a witch hunt, but you get rid of sin that's obvious that's indisputable, and that's causing a horrible witness to non-believers. you got to get rid of it. Otherwise, you don't grow. And here we have an example of church purity, death of Ananias and Sapphira, and then lots and lots of people getting saved. Verse 15 in Acts 5. As a result, as a result of all those people getting saved, in other words, they, the people, would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats. As a result of all those people getting healed, I should say. Uh, the people saw that, and so they would carry their sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. I'm assuming this is outside of the beautiful gate of, the Solom of Solomon's porch. Not the beautiful gate, I'm sorry, the golden gate of Solomon's porch. People just waited for Peter to show up because they did this every day by consent. They would meet at Solomon's porch, and people pretty soon learned their habits. 
And so they started bringing their sick people there so that at least his shadow might fall on them. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a question here. Does that mean the shadow might fall on some of them, that they might be healed as soon as the shadow went by? It actually doesn't say that. It says that was the, the sick people's intent to go there, that the shadow might fall on some of them. And they might have been erroneous in their belief that Peter's shadow might have healed them. I don't take a stand on that. I don't know. Now, this idea of being close to some of the physical accoutrements, if you will, of the apostles, would, which would bring about healing, this is an idea similar to other incidents in Scripture. For example, in Acts 19.12, so that even face cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin, that's Paul's skin, I believe, were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And that's why these, unfortunately, these fake healing evangelists will will get they'll they'll say i'll send you one of my handkerchiefs if you'll send me money you know that kind of stuff but forget the fakes folks this was happened this happened in acts 19 that just even physical objects touched by the apostles actually affected physical healing can you imagine the power something that i don't understand i've never seen that i mean i've seen a lot of miracles i've seen a lot of healing i used to be in the charismatic movement it was a lot of that stuff but i never saw anything like that Matthew 9:20. Just then a woman who had been suffering from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the tassel on his, that's Jesus' robe, just touched the tassel, just touched the robe. Now, the NIV study Bible says that this doesn't mean that any of these incidents involve some sort of magic. It sounds like magic, sort of, but this is not magic. It just rather meant a direct means of contact with Jesus or the apostles. It showed faith that if they could get close to the, to, to the people who were preaching the word, Jesus or the apostles, then they could get healed. And I think the NIV study Bible is completely right. Now, this verse, this idea about the shadows falling on Peter's shadow, falling on people that it might heal them, that verse has been used by Catholics to argue for the healing efficacy of relics. That's another abuse of this. Not only the fake healing evangelists mailing out their handkerchiefs so you can send them money, but also Catholics saying, see, yeah, you just touch this bone or touch this saint and you get healed. Uh-uh. I don't I don't believe that. Now why were they why didn't they just ask Peter to touch him and heal him instead of relying on his shadow? Adam Clark points out that many people were crowding around Peter and the apostles and and so the people couldn't get to the apostles, so they were content just to touch his shadow. And you notice that it's not Peter's shadow that healed them. They were healed by their attitude of faith, not their belief in Peter's shadow. Why is Peter mentioned out his shadow and there were other apostles working too? Well, Peter is singled out for mention because he was the most well-known apostle. He was the chief speaker and actor among the apostles. He was a leader. He, he was kind of rash and impetuous before he got discipled by Jesus and baptized in the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And now now all that, the bad parts of his personality are coming back to help him. He's a leader. He's the leader of the apostles. He wasn't a pope, but he was the leader. Acts 5.16. In addition, a large group came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So now the news has spread beyond Jerusalem. People are getting healed in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. So the word started spreading, word of mouth, to the towns around Jerusalem, and they started coming into town. So they got another influx of people in Jerusalem. You know the Sanhedrin must have been going crazy at this time. Now notice they were bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. Now this brings out a comment by Adam Clark, and this is often repeated, and that is this. Sick people must be distinguished from those with unclean spirits. 
They're not the same thing. It is possible to be sick without being possessed of a demon, as Adam Clark says. It's also possible to, possible to be possessed of a demon and not sick, as Adam Clark says. And it's also possible to be sick and possessed of a demon at the same time. Now, there are lots of scriptures that show that distinction. This is sort of beating a, beating a side point to death, but I'm going to go ahead and read these to show the distinction between being possessed of a demon or demonized and sick, Matthew 4:24. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought to him all who were afflicted, those who suffered from various diseases, there's the sickness and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics. It sounds there, it's not proof positive, but it sounds like there's a distinction between demons and people that are sick, although you could make another argument. But let's go to Matthew 10:1. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits, there's the demons, to drive out, to drive them out, and to heal every disease and sickness. There's a distinction. Mark 1.32, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Sick, demon-possessed. Two verses later in Mark 1.34, and he, mil- and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. There's the sickness. And drove out many demons. There's the demon-possessed. Mark 16.17-18, And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons, and they will speak in new languages. They will pick up snakes if they drink anything deadly, but never harm them. They will lay hands on the sick. So there's your demons, there's the sick. And they will get well. Luke 4, verses 40 through 41. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. There's the sickness. As he laid hands on each one of them, he would heal them. Also, demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, there's something different. Healing demons. Luke 7:21. At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases. There's a disease, plagues, and evil spirits. So, although you could make a case that the diseases and the evil spirits are the same, but they're distinguished enough out in the scriptures to where you think that there's two different things. I think Adam Clark's got that one right on the head. He's right about that. We go now to Acts 5, verse 17. Then the high priest took action. <laughs> took action because of all that healing and preaching going on in his temple. He and all his colleagues, those who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Now we see once again now the conflict between the Sadducees and the apostles. And this is pretty good because the Sadducees were the rationalists of the day. They didn't believe in miracles. Ha <laughs> ha! And now they've got to deal with a whole ton of them right there in their backyard. Which high priest took action? Well, it could have been Annas, the father-in-law, or Caiaphas, the son-in-law, Annas, the previous priest who had been deposed by the Romans about 15 years earlier. Or it could be Caiaphas, Annas. The NIV study Bible says it was Annas. Gill says it was Caiaphas. I don't know how anybody can know that. And remember, when it says the high priest, that doesn't necessarily mean he was in office at that time. Just like we say the President Clinton or the President Jimmy Carter, they're still alive, but they're not in office, but they still we call them president. Who were his colleagues that, that helped them bring the apostles in for trial? Those were probably his family members. Acts chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. A little bit of nepotism going on here. John and Alexander, John and Alexander nobody knows who they are. Now, what were the beliefs of these Sadducees that were mainly, who were mainly the ones opposed to the apostles' teaching and healing in the temple? Well, they were, were a famous Jewish sect. Their beliefs were there would be no resurrection of the dead. Of course, their whole system of no resurrection was challenged by the teaching about Jesus. As I mentioned earlier in a previous audio, resurrection was constantly mentioned in the apostles' evangelistic message. 
He rose, he rose, he rose, he rose. Resurrection mentioned all the time. The Sadducees said there would be no personal Messiah. Well, <laughs> they're preaching a personal Messiah whose name was Jesus. The Sadducees said that they were then living in the Messianic age. And the apostle says, no, the Messianic age is going to come with Jesus. They control the temple, of course. That's why they were arresting the, the apostles here. And the high priest himself was a Sadducee, and he presided over the Sanhedrin. So it's mainly the political, the religious, uh, religious authorities, and P and the scholars debate about how many Pharisees and how many Sadducees were on the Sanhedrin. Did they alternate the majority and all that? According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, I read that. But it's in the scriptures we see it's mainly the Sadducees who are really bent out of shape about the early apostles' teaching. Verses 18 through 20 in Acts 5, we continue. So they, the Sadducees, the high priest, and his colleagues, arrested the apostles and put them in the city jail. Now, jail was probably there in the temple complex in one of the buildings, side buildings there, I assume. Verse 19, but an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple complex and tell the people all about this life. This life, what a great way to summarize the gospel. The gospel in one word, life, as opposed to death. How did they get the apostles out? Nobody seems to know. It was obviously a miracle. The angel came and opened the door. I assume the guard, it was in the deep, deepest part of the night, probably in the early morning hours, and the guards were probably sleeping away. And, of course, who knows? The angels could have could have done something to them to put a, put a deep sleep on them in addition to the natural sleep they already had. I don't know. But at any rate, the angels got them out. Now, which angel it was. Gil says it could be Michael or Gabriel. Well, of course, it doesn't matter. Nobody knows. Why did God send an angel? Well, there's a lot of skeptical types, liberals, who say, well, what's the point of sending an angel? This is often said with a sneer. What's the point of releasing them from jail? They got arrested again the next day. Well, well, there's plenty of reasons. This was an implicit rebuke of the Sadducees who didn't believe in angels. It influenced the Sanhedrin. It baffled them. It confused them. It helped the apostles' defense. Verse 24 says they were baffled. You know the Sanhedrin had to be all that the apostles managed to escape in the middle of the night. My gosh, they're out there preaching after we just arrested them. Verse 20, uh, the, the commentary Lang says that the apostles had, quote, perplexity and confusion of mind. So, it confused the Sanhedrin and encouraged the apostles. You can imagine they were discouraged, lying in jail. And I said, whoa, we just got sprung by a supernatural agency. That's going to encourage them to be even more bold. They needed to be bold because the Sanhedrin was trying to snuff them out. And Ellicott mentions, the, the commentator Ellicott mentions that it was nice for the apostles to be delivered from their vile company, even if it was just for a few hours. That's another reason for the Angels coming. I don't buy that. I don't. I think the apostles could have stood a couple hours sleeping next to a bunch of convicted criminals. After all, everybody's probably asleep. So we can forget that. Liberals, excuse me for bringing up that dirty word here in the middle of this, but uh, many liberals say that it was a natural. That it was a. There is a natural explanation of, for the apostles' escape. It was a flash of lightning, an earthquake, or maybe the prison guard was a Christian. He let him out. Notice, however, that that directly contradicts the words of the scriptures. You want to be a liberal, be a liberal, but don't be a Bible-believing Christian because you can, if you start denying the scriptures like that, you are a scripture denier, and that's not interpreting the scripture. That's denying the plain words of the scripture. It was an angel, a messenger from God. 
All right, so that's why the angel showed up and let him out. Notice that the angel said, Go and stand at the temple complex and tell all the people about this life. The angel didn't say, Escape from jail and go look to your personal safety and deliverance. Says he, The angel said, Get out there and risk your neck again. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. The word angel of the Lord is used four other times in Acts. This proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you're going to believe in Jesus and the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit and all that, which, of course, we as Orthodox Christians do, you're going to need to believe in angels. Acts 7, 30 through 31. After 40, this is Stephen during his trial when he was before he was stoned. He's given a rundown of the Old Testament. He says, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, Moses, in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. Acts 8.26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. That's where he met the Ethiopian eunuch. An angel told him where to go. Acts 12.7-10, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side. He woke up and said, quick, get up. This is when, where was that? What jail? Gosh, I can't remember. can't remember where Peter was when he got, he was in prison. But anyway, I think it was Jerusalem. But anyway, um, the angel, well, let me keep reading. Quick, get up. The chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the angel told him, told Peter, put on your sandals. And so he did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So he went and followed him. He did not know what had taken place through the angel. He did not know that what took place through the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So that's a pretty awesome occasion for Peter, too, to see that angel. Acts 12, verse 23. And once an angel of the Lord struck him, I think this is uh, Herod Agrippa I, struck him because he did not give glory to God. This is when he got worms and his guts fell out, all that gross way of dying, because he he went into a, an assembly at the amphitheater in Caesarea, and all this silver stuff shining off of him, and the sun glanced off that silver, and he shone like a god, and the people started saying, oh, he's a god, he's a god, or whatever they said, something like that, and he accepted that divine praise, and as a result, God struck him dead. It actually says an angel of the Lord struck him, not God, but an angel of the Lord. So God has his messages. Don't ask me why. I don't know. I will say this. I've always had a little trouble with angels. I don't know why I believe. I don't have trouble believing a lot of other stuff, but angels have always been a mystery to me. I'm sure they probably saved my life several times unawares. And angels are big these days in the New Age movements. Of course, those angels are always little sissy little women angels, you know. <laughs> so, and uh, that, of course, is a perversion of the truth. Angels are never said to be she. And they're never said to be gentle and nurturing and soft and kind. They're usually big and tough and mean. And mean toward our enemies. Not mean toward us, of course. Now, why were they put in jail? Why did the Sanhedrin put... The apost- it doesn't say, by the way, who the apostles were. It says they arrested the apostles. Some people say it's Peter and John. Some people say it was other apostles. We'll, we'll know it was at least Peter and John. Why were they put in jail? John Gill says it was to secure them, or maybe it was also to disgrace them. I think it was to secure them. I don't think they could get around to disgracing the apostles, not after what was going on. All the people on their side putting them in jail, well, that might have made them look bad in the eyes of the people. If if so, if that was their intention, it didn't work. All right, we go to verses 21 through 23. In obedience to this, they, that's the apostles, in obedience to this, in obedience to what? In obedience to the angels to command to go out and preach this life. In obedience to this, they entered the temple complex at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived... 
they convened the Sanhedrin, the full senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the temple police got there, the temple police, of course, were in charge of the jailers. When the temple police got there, got to the jail, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported. We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Oh, what a shock that must have been. The angels managed to get Peter and John out, unlocking the doors and then locking them back without the guards waking up. This is a miracle. Now, who is the Sanhedrin that was convened? It was the Supreme Jewish Court. As the NIV Study Bible says, it contained between 70 and 100 men, the proper number being 71. I guess that was what they should have had, but sometimes the numbers varied a little bit. They sat in a semicircle. This is at some room in the temple. They sat in a semicircle, and behind that semicircle, there were three rows, straight rows of disciples of learned men. I guess those were the lawyers that looked things up in case it was necessary. The clerks of the court stood in the front of that semicircle. It was an awesome type assembly. I'm sure they did all that as courtrooms. They often do in courtrooms. They, they put all the majesty around to, to cow the participants in the trials to behaving themselves. Now, when the temple police reported to the Sanhedrin that there was no one inside, what they meant was no apostles inside. I'm sure the other bad guys, the convicts or whoever else were in there, they were still there. But he, what he meant was there's no other apostles inside now let me once again call out the apostles for their guts they've just been arrested they get sprung and they enter the temple complex they go right out into the teeth of danger right out into the home court the bailiwick of the sadducees and the sanhedrin and they stick it in their eye it's like they've got their thumb and they're just sticking it right in the sanhedrin's eye now, again, I mentioned how did the angels get them out without the guards knowing. Most people don't really comment on that. I kind of wondered about it. I imagine the guards were probably sleeping hard in the middle of the night. Cambridge Commentary says this might be an implicit rebuke of the Sadducees who didn't believe in angels. Maybe, but notice that the apostles didn't appeal to the angels, didn't mention the angels setting them free. And so that if I don't know how the Sadducees would have found out about the angels setting them free, but if they did, that, that would be... I'm sure they'd say, wait a minute, we don't believe in angels. Now notice, as the Cambridge Commentary also points out, the apostles did not appeal to their miraculous deliverance as proof of their message. Why? Because the apostles only appealed to miracles when there were credible witnesses that had seen the miracles, and so the miracles could not be denied. And you see that all through the Gospels. That's why I wish charismatics, when they do a miracle, if they do a miracle that's private, keep your mouth shut about it. The apostles kept their mouth shut about this private miracle. The miracle had other Reasons behind it, not witnessing reasons, deliverance reasons, encouraging the apostles reasons, but not witnessing reasons. So if you're going to do a miracle, do it in front of where everybody can see it and nobody can deny it. And then your miracle has a lot of apologetic impact. We now go to Acts 5, 24, 25, and 26, and we'll finish up our section. As the commander of the temple police and the chief priest heard these things, they were baffled about them as to what would come of this. I guess they were baffled as to how it happened and also what the results are going to be. Oh, my gosh, our guys got loose. And while they're sitting there trying to figure out what they're going to do, verse 25, someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple complex and teaching the people. Oh, I wish I could have seen the look on the Sadducees' face. Verse 26, then the commander went with the temple police and brought them in without force. That's the commander of the temple police went with his temple police. These are probably 
Levites who were in charge of maintaining temple security, they brought the apostles in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. Without force, the commander probably entreated them, hey, how about come to the Sanhedrin? They want to see you. They didn't arrest them. They just talked them into coming. Adam Clark says the apostles must have cheerfully obeyed, feeling it was their duty to obey the authorities for the Lord's sake. I guess so. Why did the why did the commander and the temple police not use force bringing the apostles in? Because it says right here in verse 26, because they were afraid the people might stone them. The people were really happy about all these miracles, and the Sadducees were not on the side of the people. They were not the popular party at this time. And so we will leave it here. Next audio, we'll take up the, the hearing. This is their second hearing before the Sanhedrin. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.